Hello, welcome. Um, 831 podcast. How are we doing? Uh, it's been a while, I know. I've been rather busy. Um, work commitments, training for an upcoming fight. I fight on May the 25th, uh, Raged UK. So I've been busy training for that. I've got a couple of really good podcasts lined up. Um, spoke to some people. I need to get together with them and get them put out for you guys. But yeah. Keeping busy, trying to do as much as I can. <clears throat> Obviously, other commitments, but paragliding season's here, and so that obviously steals me away. But yeah, we're still cracking on with these. I haven't forgotten about about them, and they are my focus, but we are going to get to them. As soon as this fight's over, I'll have more time to travel around and see different people. And, you know, I've got lots of people in Bristol that I want to see, but also it's nice to get around and, and see other people. So I've got to venture out and see some people away from Bristol. So it's having the commitment and the time to do that. But I promise I'll get them done ASAP. And as I said, some really good ones coming up. So please keep following these. Stay tuned. Um, today's guest is Steve Ham. Steve's a paragliding pilot from the UK. Very well-known paragliding pilot. He's... Uh, one of the the most well-known guys in the UK and further afield, really. I met Steve a couple of years ago through paragliding, but coincidentally have known his family for a very, very long time, like 20 years or something, without even knowing that, that they were related. So it's, in, it's always interesting to see Steve. And then we spent a couple of days together flying the last couple of days. We, we had a little chat and I said he should come on as a guest and that anyone who's involved with paragliding should really enjoy this. He's a very interesting guy, lots of experience, so it's very beneficial and you should enjoy it. And also, anyone who's not interested in paragliding, like Steve's a cool guy, he's a good story to listen to. Um, you're certainly not going to be disappointed with the podcast. It was fun, it was interesting. So, yeah, it's been a while, but catch up with this and uh, please listen. Sponsor-wise, as always, Trojan Nutrition are forever the sponsors of this podcast. They have helped me through my whole fight career and continue to support me. So they will forever be a sponsor of this podcast. Good Clear English. Andrew sponsored me for the XP, so he's obviously still on board as a sponsor. And I am taking sponsors now for this podcast for my upcoming fight, etc. So if you want to get your brand noticed and put out there on this podcast and on my social media, on any of my fight clothing, etc. So please get in touch. And we'll get that put out there. But yeah, other than that, um, plenty of things coming up. Really excited to get a lot more of these put together for you and get them put out and keep you interested, really. But as always, uh, please share. If you listen, please share this. Even if you're not listening through through a social media link, if you just know the podcast, just go to your social media, find my page, find the 831, and just give it a share. Please just try and get as many people listening as possible. That obviously gives me much more inspiration for the commitment to get these done. But in the meantime, I had a really good time on this one. Really great to speak with Steve, and I hope you enjoy it. And please listen, and I will catch you on the next one. Thank you very much. Okay, so welcome, 831 Podcast. So, Steve, thank you very much for joining me. It's a pleasure to have you on. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. It's... uh, 
one of those things where I, I feel quite privileged because you're obviously out of the country for most of the year. So to have you here for the for the North South Cup, I just thought, and we've flown a lot lately together. So I just thought this is like the prime time to sit down and speak with you. Otherwise, what a year ago by before we really get the opportunity. So. Yeah, it's quite a, a lucky by chance thing, really. Well, the fact that we're almost neighbours as well. <laughs> we live in <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, there uh, is that. Yeah, my uh, ancestral home here in Bristol. Yeah, and obviously your your family has been friends with my family, as in your your niece and my sister have been like best mates for thirty years or something. You know, twenty odd years or something like that. And then just one day out of the blue, Laura was like, "Oh, you must know my uncle Steve." I was like, "Your uncle Steve?" She went, yeah, Steve Ham. I was like, that's your uncle. She's like, yeah, just out of the blue, just one day it just came up. So, yeah, it's a bit of a coincidence, really, that we have that connection, both being Stockwood, you know? Yeah. And you're, uh... so yeah, your story is you started paragliding a long time ago. Um, sort of fill us in how you got started and where it came from. Um, well, I was uh, in the Avon Hang Gliding Club back in the in the 80s I started I tried hang gliding started when I was 18 in, uh, in Folkestone when I was at college and uh, that was about 1981 but I really got going in the mid 80s and um, in around 1989 1990 I did some work for Airwave doing a sort of some market research for them selling gliders in Spain because at that time Airwave were a British based company working out of the Isle of Wight and so I did some sort of market research for them in Spain because I live in Spain, I spoke Spanish. And um, I thought, well, actually, maybe I could do this distribution for them. So I set up in Spain in a place which I thought was going to be up and coming as a good XC site. It's a place I'd read about in the Cellblade magazines because they'd been flying big flights in the convergence there. But it hadn't really been tapped as far as uh, hang gliding and paragliding went. And... Um, and that's when I started paragliding. I started paragliding because Airwave said, go and learn because you need to sell paragliders because we've just got this black magic out and this single and they're really early stuff. So I did a, a kind of taster flight on the Isle of Wight, a sort of morning and a half. And uh, that was my paragliding instruction back in about yeah, 1990, 1991. So that was, you were originally a hang glider pilot. And that's yeah, I was um, flying, yeah, I was sort of uh, flying competitions by that time in hang gliding and getting sort of reasonably okay still quite good at crashing them but, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and this is hang gliders that i guess they're not hang gliders as we know them now te- like the technology uh, etc well you know back in 81 yeah they were, um, they were sort of fourth generation machines but by you know the mid 80s uh you know they were they were pretty much you know sixth generation machines right you know uh, they weren't at that stage um, topless but they had you know, a magnificent glide of about ten and a half to one you know, about <laughs> the same as an intermediate paraglider now yeah. and they were a real dog to you know to, to, to fly really they didn't have the same precision as a paraglider in light lift and of course landing was really problematic because um, the, the flare window was quite difficult and um, or I wasn't very good <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah it, it cost yeah, a bit more effort to land them so, um, and I'd actually, I was actually flying, I had a, quite a big accident in the Spanish Nationals in Castajon de Sos in about 91, soon after, soon after I was living in Spain, which left me a little bit um, damaged. And um, although I carried on hand gliding, 
I really focused on the paragliding after that because it was a lot easier to carry yeah. and a lot easier to land. You know, so what was it, what, were, what were one of those paragliders weighing back then? Oh, they weren't weighing so much because we didn't have all the kit. You know, we were had the the the, the harness was you know, very you know weighed probably less than a kilo of that because oh, yeah? it was just you know, a couple of bits of straps <laughs> and um and a wooden seat plate and then you sort of tied on a reserve <laughs> on the side somewhere and um and those reserves were useless anyway because we, we were using hang gliding reserves which were really small and when I did come down on one once you know it was pretty painful. And yeah, the, the actual paragliders, they might have been a bit heavier because they had a lot more line. Yeah. And they weren't using like white fabric. But early on, yeah, early 90s, yeah, they probably, probably like, not quite like lightweight kit now, but not far off. But then come when we started, you know, getting, going XC a bit more often, we were using you know, decent, what, what we thought were decent uh, harnesses and reserves. I guess yeah, we were up to sort of eighteen kilos then for some reason. It was a big jump up. Yeah. To um, but conversely, the hang glider would have been what sort of weight? Oh, the hang glider was a nightmare. You know, they were um, actually like thirty kilos for the glider, and then you had another. Um, your harness is going to be probably weighing somewhere in the region of you know, ten or twelve kilos. So it was a real struggle, especially yeah. for a, you know a, bit of a wimpy guy like myself. And if you're taking off on the hill, I guess you're. If you've got to hike up the hill, you've got to hike up the hill twice with both of that bits of kit. At uh, least twice, right? Well, no, we kind of, I used to, well, some people, yeah, there's a friend of mine, he was my guru in the early days, a guy called Mark Haycraft, who anyone in the Avon Club will know, and he's now, you know, regularly winning the, the French XC League, he lives in um, Lorraine now, and he flies in Atos. But uh, he famously um, went down uh, in a British league at Merthyr, to the bottom line field, yeah. And he was so angry with himself, he carried the whole lot up in one go, you know. But he was a stonemason, fit bloke, very strong, whereas I'm not. <laughs> and, uh, and I would uh, struggle. But um, yeah, you know, many a day I remember going, you know, flying three times on the Blorange when I was keen early on, carrying it up three, not from the bottom, you know, but from the car park. And it's still a long yeah, walk, yeah. but with all, all the kit and the harness, yeah, it was a pretty, uh, I wouldn't do it these days. I wouldn't yeah. do it also, but in my 20s i guess i had a bit more a little bit more yeah i see the guys at the mulverns or um at hay bluff or somewhere and they're carrying their kit up and they've got you know the, the glider and then they go back down get the harness where we go take that back up and i look and i think oh, that looks a, that looks a ball ink that does carrying that up well i guess a lot of them are my age you know in the 50s and they're knackered so they probably <laughs> have to but in their you know in the younger fitter days perhaps they'd have done it in one go yeah. and a lot of the guys a lot of the guys are on the um the rigid wings and i think you can split the wings down to two parts so yeah, it's, it's easier and those things would be impossible to carry all together i guess yeah it's uh <clears throat> that's one thing that's i mean i've never really fancied hang gliding anyway um i got into paragliding and i sort of i'm happy with paragliding you know and then you see the the kit size and the xc trouble of having to get a hang glider back home etc it's never really i've never been fascinated by it at all i just think that mm. looks like a ball lake so back in the day i i can just imagine it being even worse with even less chance of a retrieve um and even more hard work going into getting a retrieve or getting your kit home if you do land out somewhere yeah i, can, I was talking to nev the other day nev almond and he said to me that uh he said that's why he just does triangles mainly because you land back mm. in the car or, or out in returns you know yeah well i was just thinking of nev because um all those things you said about hang gliding, and it's a real pain in us retrieving the glider. Unless you've got someone following you, it's a pain. But then, and I think, oh, I don't really need that. 
and uh, then you see what Nev's doing and you think well actually if I was as good as him and I hit his glider then that looks like a fantastic yeah. sport but um, uh, there's still the same problems with transportation and things and if you want to go abroad you know it's just so easy with a paraglider these days yeah. and, um, you know, and the days I've been here you know, we jump off the hill fly somewhere land at a train station and it's just such a complete amazing fantastic sport yeah. and uh, whereas hang gliding is all of that but it just needs a little bit more thought and attention to detail, which I can't be bothered with anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so you went, so you went to Spain f specifically for Airwave to try and establish somewhere where you could what test gliders or push the no, envelope no. or. Well, they they were um, just getting going in paragliding, and uh, Bruce had joined uh, Airwave, and Barney was there, um, and they were involved in the design of paragliders, and they were selling bugger all in Spain. They were sending the hang gliders, hang gliders were reasonably big and they had a dealer there, but they just wanted to open the market to paragliding. And, um, and they just wanted me to go and investigate and see if I could push things a little bit. And at that time they opened up, uh, they, they opened up like a, uh, Airway France and Airway Spain, which was me. And um, it turned out to be a bit of a disaster for them really, <laughs> I think in, in retrospect. Um, because although, you know, we started moving, getting the sales going um, by having me there, the problem with Spain is that um, uh, their word is not their bond as far as <laughs> <laughs> as far as financial transactions go. So it's quite easy to sell. You know, a dealer would say, "Yeah, great. You know, we'll have you know, two magic kisses, or uh, we'll have you know sixteen paragliders. That's all great." And and then they would be very reluctant to pay for them. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had actually worked in the in the financial sector in the UK or in in stockbroking where your word was your bond and I quickly found out that that was not the case in Spain and we went into quite a, a bit of a financial meltdown really because of all the debts <laughs> but uh, anyway I we, uh, while I was really I, I found this place called Piedra Heater which is a fantastic place because it has all the infrastructure for running comps and for doing XE and it's got a road to take off and it was just fantastic for big distance and in those days early 90s um, I kind of knew what I was doing as far as XE went, but a lot of the people who were paragliding didn't have a clue because they were just paraglider pilots who hadn't done any cross country because you couldn't go cross country very well on a 90, on the circuit late 80s paraglidists because they didn't have the glide and so they hadn't experienced that. So we're talking in the UK? I'm talking in Spain. I'm talking in the UK as yeah. well. In the UK as well. So, um, you know, I'd done all the XE stuff and I understood thermals and soaring and all that. And um, when I jumped on the paraglider, just like people like, you know, like John Pendry, Robith and Bruce, who are all the gods in those days, I found it quite easy to um, do quite well. So I was able to, in Spain, set the Spanish distance record quite a lot, you know, because you, know, you were doing like 60Ks, that was the record. Next week you did 70Ks, that was the record. Yeah. So the first 100Ks, that was the record. And then on and on, and I got the European record at 160 odd in about 1993 which is quite big news then because the world record is only a little bit further and at those stages in Spain and even in the UK you could do quite big distances and and they were kind of important on a world scenario these days if you want to make a world record where well, you've got no hope in the UK yeah no hope in Spain yeah. you have to go to somewhere like Brazil or Texas somewhere but in those days it was a sort of pioneering days and um yeah it just felt a little bit exciting I was still exciting for those people who are doing it now but it's bloody hard <laughs> yeah, yeah. whereas those days yeah. you kind of stumble into records and then I in, uh, in, I even came back to the UK and I stumbled into the British record which I held for 10 years in, um, yeah. 
yeah, I got the I had the British record in 1994, for until um, ten years later. What was the record Nigel, and where from? It was from the Long Mind. Yeah, we had um, it was British Nationals, and we took off it some stupid hour in the morning, and they got really good. And I uh, yeah did um, I only landed because I I couldn't read the animal very well. I was getting near Luton, and it was 165 or something like that. And um, yeah, that stood for ten years. Bloody hell! And that was nineteen ninety four. Yeah, on a on a voodoo perhaps, or uh, Bruce flew that day, and uh, I think he did about one hundred and fifty. And but and um, would that have been the record previously? If Bruce, if you wouldn't flown no, with Bruce, it have been the record one. I think well, I, well, those days, um, Richard Carter, of course, an yeah, amazing pilot, and he was getting the record, and yeah. I took it off him, I presume. And there was a time actually. I, I don't know if you've heard of a guy called um, oh, the guy Walter Newmark. He's the guy who pretty much invented paragliding in mm -hmm. the UK sector. Walter Newmark was an amazing guy back in the nineteen fifties. Walter, who was a sailplane pilot and he knew lots of figures in the sailplane world, like Anne Welsh, you know, he decided that um, wouldn't it be nice if normal people, you know, could go out and paragl could go out and fly? Because even even in, in the fifties, it was a sport of the reasonably wealthy people mm -hmm. and he'd read stuff by Regalo in about and he got involved in parachuting and he thought well actually these parachutes what we could do is tow them up rather than jump out of planes to make it cheap and he got all this boy scouting parasending thing going and I met Walter and he's this, he was an old man at the time back in 19 he came to one of our British nationals because he was really into the paragliding scene because this was his dream realized yeah you know, the you know working class blokes going out flying off hills and having a lovely time and uh, I remember we had a, f a first round in the in the nationals in uh, I think it was southeast Wales and it was a great day and it was wasn't forecast to be a great day but it turned out and we all took off about you know 9 30 or 10 o'clock in the morning and it got good and I ended up somewhere near the Mongolians and um, I landed near a road to get a hitch back and Richard Carter had landed somewhere short of me and I got picked. I got picked up by somebody. They took me to their house. I rang in, and they said, "Well, don't move. We'll come and pick you up." But in the meantime, the conditions on the hill got better again. And the people I was with, the Airway crew, they were looking after Sarah Fennick, who was a pilot back in the day before Judy Ledden really. Well, yeah, Judy Ledden was around, but she managed to do the British record, which is only about it was about 50 k's. But they went back, celebrated, and they forgot all about me. And I was up at this. I was only about I was about 90 k's away, or something like that. And um, which is yeah, which wasn't the British record. Yeah, but when I phoned in my coordinates, I because I was late. I didn't actually because no one picked me up, and I said, "What's going on?" And then it, uh, I think about ten o'clock at night. I said, "Oh, we forgot about you. We'll send out your Spanish <laughs> mate who'd never driven in the UK before, and he ended up in uh, I think he went as far as Stafford <laughs> before coming back to Kelly." Yeah, but yeah. anyway, I sent I sent in my coordinates, and I got ran the wrong way, and it put me at like 160 k's. So Richard Carter got a real strop on because he'd lost his record. <laughs> he hadn't because it was a it was a lie. It wasn't yeah. a lie. It was a mistake. And when I came into the briefing room in the morning, you know, everyone stood up, applauded. You know, one of, he's a jolly good fellow. Apart from Richard Carter, was <laughs> and Walter Walter Newmark, this this old boy was shaking my hand, saying, "Well done, old boy. You've got the record." And I was thinking, "What's going on?" I said, "I didn't fly very far at all." You know, <laughs> you know. And I said, I think you've made a mistake, you old chap, you know. Said, this is where I landed. Oh, okay. So everyone sat down. <laughs> and Richard Carter suddenly became very happy because he hadn't lost yeah, his record. Yeah. But then I think the year later, I did beat Richard. And then I had it for a long, long time until Nigel Pryor, actually, 
got it off me. And then, of course, Richard, Richard lately has done some. I don't know, who's got it at the moment? Richard's got Richard, it now. Yeah, yeah three hundred. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, so. Richard's. I think if I'm right, he was the first hundred k, the first two hundred k, the first. I think I was the first hundred miles. You were the first hundred miles, yeah. I think so. Yeah. yeah well, if you did 165 and the other one 163, isn't it? 162 point something to oh, do 100, 100 miles. miles. Yeah. That'd be yeah. Nice. So yeah. yeah, you probably were our first hundred miles, but yeah, yeah I think Richard was first hundred k, first two hundred, first three hundred, um, and. I did a couple of record of attempt flights with Richard last year. Um, he came down and we, we tried, never got even, cl- even close. The What RASP said was a record-breaking day turned out to be a typical RASP day. So it was still a good flying day, but nowhere near record-breaking. But yeah, Richard just turned up at a hill in Wales. I can't remember what hill it was now. Just turned up on a hill in Wales on his own last year. Boom, 300k. Yeah, so, amazing. Yeah, amazing. I mean, but even so, saying that for people who aren't, in the paragliding world, because people listen to this who who aren't into paragliding at all, a hundred and sixty-five k stands up now as a massive flight still. It's well, we not, had a, we had quite a lot less performance in those days. You know, we were flying <coughs> gliders which had about fifty cells as opposed to well, maybe I don't know, like forty eight fifty cells. Gliding of about six and a half to one on a good day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. With wind and uh, you know, didn't have the sink rate. They, no, the sink rate was pretty good on those things. You know, but the, yeah. Uh, so really no, a high performing A wing now, like a high performing beginner wing at best now. Oh no, you an A wing these days, right? Strip in A wing these days. They were what about nine to one glide, haven't they? I don't know. Yeah. I, I can't. I've never flown an A wing. Yeah, no, no, no. Most gliders, yeah, intermediates now are gliding about ten to one. Yeah, I think so. Like when you get to the mentors and stuff yeah. like that, yeah, they, they've got. Uh, yeah. I think we had. Sorry, like six and a half, seven, six and a half, seven and a half on a. Yeah, that's what they claimed. Yeah, I mean, if you flew one now, uh, you'd think you're flying. You f- you think you're in deep stall. You'd be worried. <laughs> <laughs> they, were so, they were so slow. Yeah, I, uh, my first wing was a Nova Mambu, but I had probably three hundred and fifty hours or, or something yeah. on it. So it's quite a high performance wing for a, somebody to learn on. Yeah. But I l- and when I first started flying, it, I thought it was the, the nuts nuts. But then I tried a summit, an up summit XC, and I was like. Hang on, this thing stays in the air. Like mm. my mambu, I literally had. I take off at Westbury, and I'd be hugging the hill, even when people are going up, hugging the hill to just try and stay up. Then I got in the up summit, and it sort of stayed up. And I was like, "Hang on, mm. why didn't my other glider do this?" So I guess when I look at that mambu, that was still outperforming anything you were flying oh, way yeah. back mambu in the beginning. Was, uh, it would be now. It would then have been a yeah, pretty yeah. top performing XC machine. Yeah, I mean there was there was some. Um, pretty fantastic competition prototypes for the day you know that the in those days the top guys were flying you know protos prototypes and they were dangerous and considered too difficult for a good uh, you know anyone but them and they were risky to fly and, and they wouldn't and the and only the comp only the factory pilots would get them so you wouldn't yeah. these days you've got a i've just seen you on an enzo three you know yeah. which is probably the highest performing glider ever made but in those days you wouldn't have access to them you know they'd be just for the the top chaps who are you know, the factory pilots yeah yeah because I guess they're thinking nobody else has really got the experience or but even that you know these tricky really difficult complex wings to fly were shit because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know they'd be now outclassed by a, a mambo <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah I guess so so you went then you you flew on the British comp scene quite a lot then after that that was uh, yeah well I was in, I, I, it's, it was tricky for me because I well, I was, I was sort of disenfranchised from 
voting. You know, well, this is a political thing now. You know, I've been I'm a Spanish resident, uh, but I'm a British subject. I've got a British passport, so I live in Spain, lived there for most of my adult life now. But I'm not allowed to vote in Spain, and I'm not allowed to vote in England. So I'm oh. one of these, you know. So um, and likewise on the team selection thing, it was always like, oh, well, you know, what are you? Um, you know, you. So to fly in the British to fly in the British team, I couldn't fly in the Spanish team because I had a Spanish. Uh, re, um, although I was a Spanish resident, the Spanish wouldn't allow it because um, they said, well, you have to get a Spanish passport. Although really, uh, according to the FAI, was I think you just have to be resident and get the FAI license pertinent to that country. Mm-hmm. But I had a bit of a struggle, so I thought, I want to fly comms, and I was really in, uh, so I had to come back here and fly in the British Nationals. And, um, and so I was flying with the British team, as opposed to the Spanish team. And yeah, I did, um, God, I did my, oh, actually, I was, me, I was, um, for, I was, when John Pendry won the World Championships, I was there, but as the team manager, that was in 97, and Castajon, but my first Worlds, I don't know, it's probably the early 90s, I did, um, I did Brazil, Sevilla, I did quite, I did about three Worlds, and maybe four European World, um, FA category ones, yeah. of course, during all that time, um, I was struggling to make a living in Spain doing what I do, yeah, and yeah. of course, my um, work time is in the summer, you know, I'm doing guided tours with people, and at that time, I was also running competitions to make put Peter Reed on the scene. I started running events. So I, I've, I've run about oh, maybe 50, 60 category you know, international events in Peter and all over the world. And, in, and because I couldn't afford to go to the events, it, I, and I, I ended up also being a technical director for the PwC. So I'd often go to these exotic places, to the PwC, like Venezuela, Colombia, and all these places. This is in the 90s. But I never fly. I was just on the ground you know, <laughs> being, the, being the meat director, which is intensely frustrating. Um, but I was trying to do the—I was trying to do my own comp- competitive stuff at the time. But I could never, you know, afford to do the PwC circuit in those days. So I did—I did quite a few PwCs as a pilot, but um, most of the time I was um, meat directing and that sort yeah. of thing. And um, and I've always had to put those two th- things by, side by side. But uh, you know, I really, really, really enjoyed the British Nationals, and um, my kind of ambition was to to win that, and I finally did win it. Uh, squeaked in, yeah, <laughs> and I think two thousand and two, and and I carried on. You know, I, was, I carried on uh, being really keen on on British competition. I think the last, my last Worlds was the Manila event in uh, two thousand and seven. And I thought I'd do really well there because I'd won the Minnesota Open and the New Zealand Open when they had it there. And um, and in the Worlds there, actually I was flying, what were we flying? Some one in eight aspect ratio thing that Bruce had invented, which I don't think went, well I say I don't think it went very well. Bruce won the Worlds on this glider. <laughs> but I found it for my, you know, uh, limited abilities, a real handful, you know, it didn't yeah. turn very well. It didn't. You couldn't. You couldn't make it go down. You couldn't beeline it, and you couldn't really put big ears on it. And we just happened to have that year at the world's loads of big congested clouds. Yeah. So it was really difficult to fly under a cloud without getting sucked in. So you had to, rather than going, you know, I had to basically fly around all the clouds. So you're doing a very long course. 
but that's my excuse. You know, the fact that Bruce won it on the same glider, then you know that doesn't really <laughs> say much. <for> my, <laughs> doesn't my, stand my, up. My flying skills. But if I'd have stuck to the, you know, I was flying a, a boomerang at the time. If I'd have stuck to my boomerang rather than that, then I'd have probably done a lot better because I was I was flying June in those days. Yeah. Boomerang. Why are we talking about boomerang? Well, boom, this is boomerang three, I think. Okay. Boomerang no, boomerang two, boomerang I think. Boomerang two, boomerang three. And we're now on the boomerang eleven and the twelves ready for certification. Yeah, so it's just it's, it's come on a bit. Yeah. Um, and I could fly on those days, and they were easier in those days. I'm not, I'm not sure. I haven't flown the latest. Um, I haven't flown a two liner. You've not flown a two liner. No. I so. I love two liners. I obviously had. I've been on the on a free liner for the last season, pretty much because of the X pair. So I needed lightweight gear. Got sponsored by Skywalk, so I was flying there. Um, Skywalk X Alps, which is really quite a tasty glider. It's a bit can be a bit of a handful, but it's a free liner, seven aspect ratio, a really nice glider, and I've flown. I was flying an I flew an M six and you know a few D three liner mm. Ds and then I flew an Ice Peak well I flew a Peak three and an Ice Peak six and a Zeno and my Peak three was the first glider I ever did hundred K on and I loved it I can't to this day remember a collapse on the Peak three people used to slate it if you the Nuviok Peak three mm. if you hated it or you loved it and people used to say oh it's dangerous or scary or this and I absolutely loved it. That glider was the most uh, inspiring glider I could be on. I felt really comfortable. It was, yeah, really. I felt like I could do anything on it. And then I thought, well, maybe that's just two gliders. I say two gliders. That's how they feel. Flew a Peak Four on demo for a bit. I thought well, I, don't, I don't really like the feel of this. It didn't feel like the Peak Three felt. And then a couple of months went by, and I flew the Ice Peak Six, and uh, I was like, wow, this. It is a two-liner feeling, that solid, rigid feeling of a wing above your head with all the glide and all the performance. And then so I went and took the Ice Peak 6 SOV and did lots of stalls on it and spins and, you know, had some collapse, that sort of stuff on it in SOV. And I thought, well, it's just, I love it. It behaves mm. quite well, really, considering how big it is a comp wing. I love it. I really love this glider. I carried on flying it fell in love with it and then got the Zeno and then that was a step above and I flew the Zeno and I was like yeah I'm a two-liner guy and even though I flew the Skywalk and I, I do enjoy flying the Skywalk it's a really nice lightweight glider I would much rather be on a two-liner all the time I think the only my one thing would be if I was going out for a day's ridge soaring and it was thermic as well I would choose to be on a three-liner rather than a two-liner maybe hmm. Just because yeah, I've got the tendency to cravat. If a if it cravats, it will kind of stay in more so on a two liner. So for me, I would maybe choose to be on a three liner on a day like that, thermic and ridge soaring. But that's not my sort of flying. I, I don't generally go out to to ridge soar if it's thermic. I want to get away. Um, so yeah, for me, two liners are. Once I'd flown one, I was like, yeah, I'm sold. This is the way to to go. Yeah, well, I understand all the advantages, and I, yeah, I think if you're flying it, then you have to be very current like yourself, and you've done all the SIV, so mm -hmm. that's fantastic. But I'm, I'm carrying a lot of emotional, mental baggage because I was the meet director and organizer of the world championships when two people got killed in the early days of mm -hmm. the two liners, you know, the first big event, and it was going to be my swan song, you know, my ambition to run a world championships, meet direct it, and the weather was coming good, everything was, you know, it was spent years of planning, and then the year before they changed some FIR rules as far as the certification on gliders go 
and we had a lot of people turning up on these new gliders who don't need to sculpt them and at that stage you know all that was needed was a a load test mm -hmm. and a video of a of one of their test pilots being able to recover this glider and that was what the gliders people turned up with in the worlds which i ran in peter back in 2011 and it was evident that a lot of people didn't have a clue how to fly them and yeah. um and you know, it was great consequences it was early days and of course because of that event you know we had quite a number of years when competition gliders were banned competition yeah. gliders were banned so i was in the it was not my fault no, what am i saying now? i was in the except in, in at the beginning of that and of course you know having two people die when you're running the event there is a lot of you know emotional baggage you know trading on so i have a you know when i think two liners i think <laughs> yeah i've got a and I've you know, subsequently, you know, there's people are still having issues with them. People who aren't who are buying them, thinking that these wings are because they are rock solid and everything's fantastic and they have got amazing performance. But when they go, you need to know what to exactly, do. Exactly. Yeah. That's right? the thing, yeah. And a lot of people are buying them, thinking this is great. And but when it does go wrong, then yeah, it's a big problem. Yeah. At that time, back in 2011, you know, I got Russell uh, to explain to pilots what to do in the event of a, in the event of a recovery and russell being the wonderful jump of the years he was very reticent about doing it because he thought he'd be te teaching like his grandest suck ex you know, yeah. telling all these world-class pilots how to fly this glider um but you could see as he was explaining you know, flying the glider backwards and the recovery and at that time he said even they weren't recovering every time <laughs> You know, people were amazed at what you had to do to recover these gliders. They were a different breed of gliders. And we knew then that you know, people were not ready for these gliders. And that were, those were the supposedly world-class competitors of the day. Although a world championship event doesn't really have the same category of pilots as a PWC because the selection criteria is different. Um, but you, know, you can look at the same thing now. I, I always get a little bit worried when I see blokes of my age leaping on a on a Zeno, you know, yeah. the Zeno, I think Alex said the other day, is the, is the Ford Capri, you know, of, of paragliding. Yeah. Everyone seems to have one. It's a sporty yeah. racing car and it's, everyone has one. And I think probably in the UK, you know, you have, it's a pretty <coughs> mellow place to fly. And uh, I think most of the time people would be okay. But all the time, you know, I think yeah. if people buy these gliders, they have to you know, be aware of the consequences and not be aware of it. They just need to go out and get the bloody training. <laughs> That's what they yeah, need exactly. to do. Yeah, exactly. You know, I've realised, you know, that I'm not motivated to do competitions anymore. Love paragliding. And I'm just as happy flying a, a lower level win, wing. And I can do all the XEs, which I could probably, most of the XEs I could probably do on a, on a higher class wing without compromising my safety so much yeah but disclaimer paragliding is very very dangerous <laughs> be it if you're on a p or an a or whatever and um but yeah you know yeah i mean I, so i say my, my opinion is the xeno is the best cross-country paraglider in the uk that you could fly that's taken into account all the elements of flying cross-country you want a glider that can thermal really well it's great it's sniffing out light lift it's great at working light lift it's great it's solid above your head it's got a great glide it's like every element you want if you want to fly big distances for a uk xc the xeno has it however 
there is compromise with that in that if a Xeno does go wrong, you have to pilot it. It will not sort itself out. You have to be there to pilot mm. I had some big collapses on mine in St. Andre and I had to, to sort it out. It never sorted itself out. And uh, conversely, the Enzo 3, when you step up to that, is a little step again. That If I get a little cravat on the Enzo 3, I have to get it out. It doesn't pop out like the Xeno used to, let's say. Now, I've seen in, in SIV some sea gliders behave in a way and i see people i see people who are maybe they have the experience as a pilot but maybe they don't have they're not current enough with their siv or they've never done siv and they're flying these sea gliders and i've seen them i thought that's a handful like that's if you were like slightly older you're not getting as many hours in as you should you're not flying 200 hours a year i've seen some sea gliders get really badly out of shape in siv and it makes me think you know you need to assess where you're at there so these xenos people flying these xenos they are fantastic they are all inspiring they feel great above your head they're they are all of those things but like you say i do think that people don't necessarily know either through ignorance you know maybe they haven't i, I was shocked at how many people haven't done siv in the uk top pilots pilots have been flying mm. for a long time who haven't done siv or have only just recently done siv and i think you put yourself on a xeno you owe yourself to do an SIV, really. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Even if, you've, even if you're not going to do it on the Xeno, even if you're going to take your old sea glider, but you've never done an SIV, you owe yourself to do an SIV because when that goes tits up, it can go in such a way that even if you don't know how to sort the Xeno out, you might not remember to pull your reserve. It's going to get so hectic, or it might get. you. Everything might just go up in the air. So just having it in your head that this is how it's going to behave, even if you can't handle it above the lake in Annecy, when it starts to do that, at least you'll get the, the repetition of going for your reserve and throwing it and realising, well, at least I know I, I can go to my reserve if I, if I have a problem, you know? Mm. Well, it might, I might be unpopular for saying this, but I think that... Um... I don't see many blokes flying who are worthy of going above a B-class. I fly B-class. I mm -hmm. fly about 300 hours a year. I've been flying for a long time, thousands and thousands of hours, and I don't think I'm up to flying a C-class in strong conditions. And I don't see any reason why <laughs> I should, because the B-class performance these days is phenomenal. You know, so We were talking earlier about the gliders we used to fly. You know, It's almost twice the performance, my current B-class glider. Yeah. And... Um, and the passive security is, is fantastic. So, you know, well, they say you know, blokes in their 50s, I mean, you know, I, I, re, I reflexes, you know, they are going. They're, slow, they're much slower. You're not, you're not what you were. And um, you're not going to gain a lot of advantage by flying something more challenging. And you're going to frighten yourself and you're going to put yourself back. That's for yeah. sure. And also, if you're going to be flying a wing for the advantages, like, so the advantages that I get on an Enzo 3 are paramount to pushing big distances, i.e. setting a record triangle on a tri on a big triangle day at the tow field, or being able to launch in super light wind and find that little thermal. Or if I'm flying comps, I'm going to be flying comps, so I need to be on a comp glider if I want to compete. If you're not, if you don't need those things, if you're going out and saying, well, I don't want to set records, so I don't really care about flying big distances. Don't get, don't get on a wing like this. Then it's not. I mean, you're an, you know, you're an exception. Well, you're you're a person who's, who's you know, tr sports training is your thing. You've got lightning reflexes because I've just been watching you fight. <laughs> and I mean, you know, talk about reflexes. You've got them all, and also you're massively focused on paragliding, and you're know, really keen and good 
and you're there and there's absolutely no reason to not to fly what you're flying but you're not an average case exactly you know? yeah you know, just like um you know it's like saying well we could we could look at the boxing and fighting thing you know i think well you know you know i wouldn't get in the ring with you <laughs> and just like you know and it's the same thing it's like saying you know some bloke having a go at you what well, it's like having a go on an enzo you know someone who's never had any fight training you know going up against you know a guy who's been training exactly. for 30 years yeah. to fight you know yeah. you just haven't got it in you you're going to get hurt and yeah. it's an and you, landing, you, but you, you have to ask why like why would you want to fly Xena or Enzo what is it that you want because they look do really sexy want, exactly <laughs> like, do and you we, want to fly massive distances on on days where you're pushing the back maybe it's a windy day so you need the extra performance maybe it's a super light day so you need that extra little bit yeah, if you're not flying on those that, days if it's not on those windy days it's absolute nonsense that you need a glide you know, I hear so many times oh my god speed by road road glide is not fast enough that's bollocks you know on a windy day you're only bimbling down wind <laughs> yeah, yeah. and not on the glides on the glides yeah. you're probably on lifty glides you're not using a lot of bar anyway and um half the time you know you're ballooning you know you're yeah. not you're not it's um it's only on the days when you're doing big triangles in lightning conditions where you might have a, you know, a significant section where you're going into wind where it's going to make a huge amount of difference mm -hmm. but most of your uk flying the guys are listening to this you're bimbling down wind and you're not going to make it's not going to make a vast amount of difference listening the odd day you, know, you often hear oh yeah i landed because my glider you know all the guys on the Zenos or whatever it was, you know, back in the day, all the guys on the Edel race got up and I didn't. It's the Wormann blaming his tools scenario, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the object hanging underneath which makes the decisions. You know, a bad yeah. decision and a bad line on the glide, you know, taking a, taking a bad line on a glide, it's far more significant than the fractional percentage you get from the performance of the glider. Yeah. Okay? That's, that's without a doubt. Yeah. You know, bad decision. Yeah, there's so many more elements. If you're so, say you're flying a triangle, how many pilots who are out there flying a triangle are looking constantly at their um, instrument to see I'm getting minus 2.6 here, I change my line, I'm getting minus 1.8, I change my line, I'm getting minus 0.8, I'll stay in the minus 0.8, boom, 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 boom. Oh, it's got a bit bad here, I'll change my angle again. And they're constantly, are they constantly looking at ground sources, cloud sources, instruments, ground sources, which is the technical factor that I believe, I may not be in a position to say this, I'm not a record-breaking pilot, but I believe that those are the factors that are going to help you fly big distances over the the high-end glider. Having those elements and being on a high-end glider is superb. That's the best mm. attribute you can have. Like Graham Steele has that. Graham, the way that Graham Steele flies... I flew with him the other day trying to fly a triangle. He was always above me, always in front of me, couldn't get near him. And literally, I was on the end of the train, I was literally like, I don't know what the man does. I don't know how he's doing it, but he's putting all of those elements together. And you see someone like Ken Wilkinson, who's flying at IOTA and regularly flying over 100 kilometers, regularly closing triangles. Okay, they're 50s and 60s, not 120k triangles, but he's regularly doing it on that glider where he's super comfortable because the wing becomes a very small part of that flight when you're doing the elements like watching your glide ratio, watching your sink rate, looking at the sky properly. Those elements are far more important then than being on the higher performance glider. I believe, you know, from my experience. Well, it's true. If you're, to be aware of the, the what's going on around you, you know, to, to be monitoring your glide, to be you know, looking at the lift, all those factors which are important, you know, to simulate what's going on in the environment, you can't do that if you're looking at your glider worrying about, worrying about it collapse. 
Yeah. No, that's absolute certain. Yeah. yeah. I think most people have been there. You know, when you're flying shit scared, you know, you're not yeah. flying very well. And uh, you know, I think Ken's a case of point at that. You know, Ken's gone onto that glider from a slightly higher one, which was causing him problems. And I mm-hmm. think at the time I was flying an Aota, and um, you know, he's now at a place where he's comfortable, confident, and doing very, very well. You know, yeah. Yeah, Ken is hang gliding before me, and uh, you know, he's got a lot of experience. Um, but he's an old git, <laughs> and he hasn't got the reflexes like we were saying, yeah. just like me. So you know, we're a lot better off on you know things with. Yeah, B-class gliders are fantastic. Anyway, there's no, you know, this is no. Well, problem. you prove that. I mean, the other day, the, just one example of the flight. I'm not going to mention the the flight at Hay Bluff. You flew a very good flight there, but at the same time, other people flew flew a half decent flight there as well. So we won't mention that. What we'll mention is the next day at Westbury, where I got away and I did like 15k or something. Tim Carr got away and did 38k, and it was bimbly, horrible little mincy stuff. Dink. I didn't get away till gone one, so you probably didn't get away till three. I would have had two, three thirty. Yeah, three thirty. So you got away later then, and the fact that you did the flight you did, which I would estimate to be over seventy k, um, the fact that you did that flight there just puts case in point that there was three Zenos, three Enzos, um, a plethora of Sea Wings. You were on your Phantom. And the person who got up in the Bimbley sky, flew the furthest distance that day, was you on that wing. So that just goes to show that the pilot underneath is is far more um, of of far more value than anything else because that must have been a ball ache of a flight because it was mincy and I mean I was in a point two point three for maybe twenty minutes, and in the end I was like I radioed to Ollie and I was like ah, stuff it I'm going on glide because I just. I knew it wasn't a massive day and I was just, I'm just pushing on to see what I get. So for you to sit there and work that lift comes from experience and the want to fly, being comfortable flying what you're, what you're flying, you know, so an exceptional flight. And obviously I've heard your name for years. You are um, a legend within UK paragliding and rightly so, deservedly so. But then when you see you turn up on a hill and you fly the way that you fly, you take off and everyone could be like, oh, well, Steve Hammer fly a big distance. And you do that at Westbury, wait it out, just knew when it was ready, then boom, the sky comes good and you're gone. No, it's just... Well, I did have a huge desire because um, I hadn't flown next to Westbury since the 80s. Because uh, I, you know, I, I come back to Britain for about you know, a week for a year to do this little hang- paragliding holiday I'm on there. And I've had a few goes at Westbury, but usually the crappy days, it's a place to go soaring. And um, and I hadn't been next to on a paraglider. And um, so I had a massive desire. As you know, my... My great desire is to fly to Weymouth from yeah. Lickhampton Hill. But uh, I really wanted to fly to the seaside that day. And um, and so, yeah, I was very motivated, even though it was it was a tiresome flight, very, very weak. And uh, After hours of, uh, yeah, of crap, firstly, yeah, nothing. Um, and the sea breeze, you know, didn't really allow me to get to eat my ice cream at the seaside that day. But it was... Um, yeah, I had a huge desire to fly there, it's, it, and it's. You know, I've got a lot of great memories. Westbury is such a fantastic place, and uh, I've still got you know, crystal clear memories of you know, flying XC there on my hangar in the early days, and I just wanted to recreate that because I'm a nostalgic old buffer. <laughs> <laughs> but those flights are really important. I mean, I don't know what sort of pilot I am. I'm not. I'm not a comp pilot. I've done this hiking, the X period did that. I'm not a hike and fly pilot. I'm not just a recreational ridge. I don't really know. And I don't 
necessarily i'm not saying that you have to be a certain pilot to fly but last year i did um i did the let Ham- let campton to weymouth flight the day before i'd done like a 100k flight as well and then tim rang me he's like about going out for a fly i said tim can't be bothered like i've flown really far the last two days i can't be bothered with a retrieve he said let's just do something small i said I tell you what i'll do a flight mirror back to bath mirror is really tricky to get away from in these conditions so let's just see we went to mirror we dropped a car at the globe pub carried on down to Mir, got away from Mir, both of us flew together up over Bath, through the airspace, landed in the field that we declared, got in the car, drove back to Mir, one of my favourite flights of the last couple of seasons because there was no pressure, it was just a small flight, if it didn't come off, it didn't care, and it was, it was almost, it almost like romanticised it, paragliding for me after two days of pushing long distances and flying for five six hours sort of romanticized it for me watching the video back you know little moments when we talk on the radio over a an hour and 20 minute flight as opposed to a five hour flight so the nostalgia for you wanting to do wanting to get away from westbury and then getting around that side as well which is the way to go for the for the coast rather than going around the other way and going downwind which is i I can imagine for you the the drive must have been there and when you got away you must have thought we're doing it here we go yeah you know know, i've not i've got no great desire to do big distance i just want to be in the air and see the british countryside you know i I was looking at warminster just taking the sights you know i'd like you know the other day we got to gloucester and tim carried on and i wanted to sort of have a good look at the city and (laughs) enjoy it because i thought well if i glide on i'll probably be in some you know field hitchhiking and oh, like, there's a nice train station here and i can enjoy the cathedral and yeah. <laughs> and for me you know that it's you know i love it and i think anyone who doesn't have a fan, you know, great desire to flying and really enjoy each flight for what it is they shouldn't be doing it because it is as we know it's a, it's a very dangerous sport at the end of the mm-hmm. day and it, it's got quite high consequences when you get it wrong but it's such a rewarding thing to do and it's just fantastic so um you know what i can i'll be carrying on doing it you know and, and and to do it to do it well at the moment i think i have to fly a glider which isn't quite so challenging yeah. and um what when, when, when you get me in the fight training and i start you know getting <laughs> my reflexes quicker I, I might be on the end there yeah we'll get you a, we'll get you a fight organized and then you've got something to, to aim for it's like, yeah. sort of like putting a goal into your gps really if we get you a fight first yeah. And then you've got to train for it. Yeah, as opposed to just training. Well, they got one arm strapped behind their back. <laughs> Unless we find someone of, of your equal ability in fighting. Uh, under 11s. <laughs> <laughs> no, my advice to everyone is not to fight. I would always say that. Like, getting punched in the face and kicked in is not. I mean, it's been my career and I've loved it and I've travelled the world and, you know, I'm fighting soon, but... It's certainly not a career path that I would want any of my children to go down and mm. being punched in the face. We're just, we're now starting to see because of science, the repercussions of that. There's something called CTE. I don't know if you know about it. I can't remember what the initial, what the, uh, what it stands for, but it's um, brain trauma from mm. impact. Yeah. American footballers suffer from it massively. There was a study of a hundred, something like 111 American footballers were assessed and a hundred of them had CTE. So that was from high school all the way up to the NFL, a hundred. So that's a ridiculous figure, you know, for like over ninety percent to have CTE. And CTE is brain damage, which manifests itself in anger, rage, and domestic violence. A lot of the time, lots of guys probably now once a month, uh, an ex UFC fighter 
or an ex MMA fighter has been put on charge for domestic abuse or right. yeah, or breaking up with their misses or getting restraining orders or being accused of being unable to live with them because of mood swings and that's all from head trauma and uh, people can say yeah well boxing's been around for years and we've not noticed that yeah but the science hasn't to assess what's going mm. wrong with these people now that it's there there was a great film called Concussion with Will Smith when you're back at Peter Heater if you get a chance to watch the film called Concussion it's a really good film and it makes you understand it's about the guy who discovered CTE and uh, now that that's sort of been discovered it's you realise the impact of what this lifestyle has and it's not fighting fighting's 15 minutes but you know I'll get punched in the head probably I would say a thousand times more in the in the training for this fight than I will in the actual fight mm. so it's sort of unavoidable you're always going to get that impact so for me I would say if you've got to your age definitely don't fight and <laughs> if you're if you're young and thinking about fighting I would say that make sure that there's nothing else that you can do at as good a level or a better level before mm. you commit to fighting because, you know, it's... There's a lot of hobbies out there which don't hit you in the face. As I would definitely tell people mm. not to do it as a hobby. Yeah. If you want to do fighting as a hobby, have one fight, do an eight-week training camp, have one fight and then walk away from it. Um, <clears throat> because you do, you can get obsessed with the, the walk to the cage, everyone cheering mm. your name, the... The sparring where you've, you've come out of it good. You've clipped somebody or you've hit someone with a body shot and dropped them. And then you can't wait to spar again. And you can go down that path. And when it becomes a career, for me, you get trapped in this position where you see so many fighters now. They're in their late 40s and they're still fighting or still trying to fight. Or there's a guy called BJ Penn. He's in the UFC. And he was like the world champion. He was unbeatable. He was like the top guy. He's still fighting now and he's getting beat by guys we would have destroyed a few years ago. But it's, in my head, I look at him and think, he's thinking, what am I going to do with my life? Or I've known he's fighting for the last 18, 19 years. What do I do? What replicates that for me? How do I get my buzz now? Where, where do I go for that feeling? As for someone like myself, who's been a bit of a, re- a renaissance man, I am absolutely passionately in love with paragliding. And I know I would be happy paragliding for the rest of my life. I'm not fighting. I love doing these podcasts. I love doing stand-up comedy. So there's so many other elements that I you have. Do stand-up now. comedy as well. Yeah, I do some stand-up. Well. I'm very, very new to stand-up. Very new to stand-up. People laugh because they're frightened. If they don't laugh, you might beat them up. Well, as long as I'm getting a laugh, I don't care. <laughs> but for me, I, I just think if you if you pursue this as a career and you don't have other elements in your life that you can do equally as well or as passionate about. It's a slippery slope, you know. You can mm. be trapped then. You can be trapped and lose all sense of who you are and you become fighting. Mm. And I think that's a bad trait in anything. Footballers who are footballers and then they retire and they end up with drinking issues. And, you know, it happens with a lot of actors, whoever. But I think if you're going to fight and let another man punch you in the face, whether that's in a cage or whether that's just in training, if you're going to do that, you need other elements of your life that you can concentrate on when that's over because it is going to catch up with you and you're not going to be able to do it to it forever. And when the consequences of what you've done catch up with you, you need to be able to focus and, and realise I'm Wes. I'm not a fighter. I'm not a paraglider pilot. I'm not a stand-up comedian. I'm Wes and I can be all of these things. If you don't have that, then I think you can get trapped and you can be end up stuck as an MMA fighter getting your face kicked in and mm. with all the consequences. So... 
yeah, my, my recommendation is don't fight. But if you want to, we'll train you. Uh, no, it was it was, <laughs> it was lightly said. <laughs> but so you're out at Pedro Heater now, and you do so you've you focused away from comp, the comp scene and competing at least. But so your role out at Pedro Heater is uh, well, like after the Worlds, I I kind of tried to move away from comps. I really got um, and I actually the year it was about 2000. It was a terrible year for me because as well as all the problems which happened at the World Championships, I had my own bad accident and I smashed up um, my right arm, and um, which I'd smashed up a number of times before in a hand glider. And, uh, and that, so that, but that's been a long, painful recovery and it's still a problem. And I, well, another thing I do is illustration, cartoon illustration. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, in my right arm, which has been damaged. So that's um, slowed me down a little bit as well. Um, but I, I, I do help out with events. I, I've been, I've, I, I was cajoled to go back to meet directing in Colombia a, f- a couple of years ago. I did a few of those, and uh, I kind of help out in Peterita when other people are running events now. I'll do the weather for them and things. But uh, I'm too interested in my own flying and flying with my groups, my clients. You know, I've, for me, competitions really is not. It's I feel it's like well. It's, well Spent a lot of time chasing uh, imaginary waypoints, or yeah. taking in the old days taking photographs of churches in the in the FI sector. And Sometimes kind of, landing just as the day's getting good because you've completed the task. Exactly, or often you know because all the faffing around you do at a competition. By the time they've set the task, it's blown out at takeoff, mm-hmm. and nobody gets to fly apart from the free flies. Um, so competition does have its drawbacks, although it is, they say, a good learning experience. Uh, yes. But it's probably not for me anymore. Uh, well, I fly this. I've come here to fly this North South Cup, but that is specifically not a competition, really. Yeah. It's um, a get together of old, old has-beens and newcomers like yourself, and and uh, it's just a lot of fun, and it's just flying cross country yeah. and. Uh, like, that, like you can't win the North South Cup. The team can only win it. It's yeah. a team thing. I mean, if it suddenly became serious and we had to do, you had to know how to use your Rario and put waypoints in, and and actually do things properly as in a comp then I would rapidly lose interest but yeah. while it remains a fun event fantastic yeah so out at Peter Heater your role is you have it's not a school is it it's like a would you class it as a school or just like uh, coaching it, used, or it a... used to be a school no not anymore it's it's uh, it's like um, fly guiding I think is the term and I think I pretty much invented fly guiding you know, I'm being a big head now maybe. but you know I was doing it since the you know, mid 90s yeah. um yeah, specifically for going XC, you know, rather yeah. than you know, a lot of fly guides, are, you know, turn up at their place and you just fly locally. They take you to another site and you fly locally there. But you know, we've been doing you know, XC stuff, guided XC and retrieve and stuff since uh, you know early mid nineties. And in the last few years, of course, it's got a lot easier with all the new technology, and we've got our own software system and tracking system which uh, works very well to, you know, we, to use the groups up to 15 people. And um, yeah, so we're, I'm very busy between June and September in Piedrita with that, you know, when the conditions are optimal. And outside of that, well, I'm sort of focusing on the cartooning and illustration stuff. Mm-hmm. So the, the fly guiding, so someone would say book a week or five days or... Yeah, a lot of people come out two or three weeks because... Um, Getting the swing. Peter Eater, it's this. It's a reasonably famous site. It was the. It was became the mecca in the nineteen, in the mid nineteen nineties. Uh, in 
paragliding competitions in the PWCs, they would tend to be doing fishbowl tasks, you know, maybe about 40, 50 Ks, and usually in the Alps, and and then they came to Piedrita, and we did, in 1995, we had a, an amazing week where we did um, a goal, an out return of 130 Ks, which was unheard of, you know, because they were doing tasks which were, you know, much, much smaller. And we had, uh, and we had 56 people in goal, and these were on the older gliders in 1995, and then we had, uh, 170, no, 180 kilometer goal, and we had most of the good part of the field in. And those were you know, early days, and that that distance goal flight hadn't been superseded, you know, in a competition until, yeah. until a few years ago. And so that really put Peter Reach on the map, and everyone wanted to do competitions there. We ran three PWCs, we did the Europeans, and, and uh, it was really big in those days, uh, but it was considered quite big air. Uh, we've got this, this, this big convergence effect. They were, um, so you're flying, you can take out to over 4,000 meters, and it's very, very long lines of lift. It's like flying a, well, it's a convergence, but not sea breeze convergence. It's two uh, air masses meeting over the flatlands, and you can fly in a straight line for a long, long, long way. And hence, in the early days of paragliding, you didn't have to take off in howling winds. You could fly, you could get the world record or the European record just by flying in quite light winds, mm -hmm. but you didn't have to do a lot of circling. You're just flying along yeah, yeah. for nine hours and you do your 200 Ks or whatever it is. And of course, you're not going to get a world record anymore. You can do 300 K flights, people do. Um, but you can fly a B class glider to 200 Ks without having to take off in howling winds. Yeah. And it's the convergence is reliable. It's most days, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, so well, the rest of Peter Heaters is flatland. Well, you're taking off, it looks, if you imagine, it's a bit like the long wind. It's quite a shallow, there's a hill, mm -hmm. flat on the top, and uh, flat in front. And then after going flat on top, it drops down and goes up to some bigger mountains. Um, we tend to be flying out in, fl in at the front. And the way the convergence it works, it tends to be over the hill at the takeoff, but as you, after about 30 kilometers, you move into a sort of flatland scenario. So you're flying in convergence, is essentially mountain convergence, which has been displaced off the mountain into the flatlands. Mm -hmm. And that kind of, that can slew off one way or the other. And in the old days, you know, I kind of worked it all out. I did a few articles in Skywings, XC Magazine, it's on my website back in the 90s. And those days I was flying like an observation balloon, just turning and working out how it works. These days, of course, we've got RASP, and you can look rasp in the morning, you can see where the convergence is, yeah. and you set your goal, boof, and you just Fly do your hundred K flight yeah. or whatever it is. So yeah. you can can you push out further and do triangles and stuff and push away from the convergence? And returns are very common. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a very common one for us is to fly to Avila, which is about fifty five Ks and back. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, most summers we do quite a few of those. Uh triangles aren't so good because there's a there's a line of convergence. So once you leave the convergence, you know, it's um you're going into less lefty wind yeah. uh, air there are a few circumstances where there's some other lines different not the classic convergence but some other uh, scenario weather scenarios where we do we can do quite an easy triangle of about 70 80 k's um but the classic one is um out of returns yeah. yeah yeah it does sound quite quite a nice place to go and just for a flying holiday especially i guess if you're if your low air timer wants to build up the sustenance of doing big flights yeah, not too low air time. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, because yeah, we're not really focusing on ab initio training. You know, it's people who are, uh, most people are, uh, you know, they've done some XCs in the UK yeah. or in Norway or in the States, wherever they, they're coming from. 
and they want to go somewhere where hopefully it's going to be more reliable, be able to fly most days, and have the potential to fly in 50, 60, 70 k's per day. Yeah. And yeah, that's what we're trying to do. And for me, yeah, yeah, we we're not, yeah, we're not really catering for guys flying you know, Enzos who want to do 300 k's in a day. We tend to be dealing with people who are flying B C class gliders, um, who want the flying holiday and they want to fly every day, but they don't want to spend the day in the van following some superhero on an Enzo going yeah, to 200 exactly. k's. Yeah. You know, so we'll set a goal, probably you know, between 100 and 150 k's, more likely to be between 50 and 130, depending on the day. You know, we want to use the maximum amount of flyable time in the day, but we don't want to we won't want to put an end to it you know, before sundown to be able to get back at a reasonable yeah. time to be able to fly the next day. And the people who haven't made it, you know, be able to get another vehicle take them back to get some evening flying it's fantastic evening flying in Piedrata it's like flying almost like, it's almost like um, coastal flying on a huge scale with this very lifty air coming in um, so yeah that's what we do yeah, nice. so it's mainly um, yeah, intermediate to advanced cross country pilots yeah nice and uh, you've touched on and mentioned a few times your illustration your cartooning that's one of the other reasons you're massively famous i guess is the the illustrations you see once you once you've been in paragliding for a while you'll see most paraglider pilots have got uh, a facebook avatar of a yeah, picture a that you've done for them <laughs> yeah. um and obviously in any magazines that you read long before i knew where you were i'd seen hundreds of your drawings or posters for events etc uh where did that come from you were you've always been artistic you had an interest in art you used to draw or it started specifically just with cartooning uh no as, as a kid i was pretty interested um but it wasn't really considered a proper career path you know, <laughs> working class kids like me from stockwood unless so, you're gonna be a graffiti artist yeah oh i should have been, yeah um but really you're the, not banksy are you uh, no, need no, to clear that no, up no, right no. now <laughs> but curiously yeah you know, i, I kind of i was so focused on hangar and paragraph for so many years what got me back into it is smashing myself up Oh, and not okay. being able to, not being able to, you know, coming out of the, uh, and curious enough, I smashed up my right arm, really good and proper. You know, yeah. it's it's not actually fused. I haven't actually got much movement in it. Um, but part of my rehabilitation you know, for myself, because I could, I, 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 I damaged the cubital nerve, so I couldn't even move my fingers. And um, but it's long slow recovery, and by draw, trying to draw, then that sort of, um, that's part of the rehabilitation. Terribly painful. But that really got me back into it. And then uh, I started, I, I, I think Pete Douglas, who actually I'm having dinner with this evening. I hope it's not, what time is it now? I'm supposed to be getting there later on. But, nearly seven. Uh, yeah. But um, I brought a computer off him and uh, it just to come with all these fantastic software packages for drawing. I thought, well, I'll have a go at that. And I just started messing around with animation stuff, which is, a, you know, I used to be, a, I'm a real animation geek, yeah. you know. And, um, I could bore you for hours of animation and, and illustration, <laughs> but uh, I just I started messing around and, and just trying to do some animation myself. And then I posted some stuff on, uh, and uh, Ed Ewing from XE magazine said, "Oh, that's that's nice. You know, you know we're looking for a, do some cartoons. And could you do do can you do cartoons as well?" I said, well I'll go, yeah. <laughs> and so I started um, working with them, and uh, I think it started out with a series called. Sky junkies, which is how we consider ourselves, a lot of us, you know, yeah. just addicted to this this sport. So it was people who were, you know, the sort of weird characters we got in our sport. And what I tend to do is, you know, kind of go off on my own little imaginary path of um, 
of discovery on the on the on the drawing as well. And um, as so I've been doing it, yeah, since pretty much since I've, when I got the use of my own back after a few years after the accident, and I've been doing it ever since. Yes. And um, yeah, doing that, a lot of event posters and caricaturing has been was uh, it's a hard you know I've been doing a lot of caricaturing, but you, I've got to be careful of that because. Um, People take offence. <laughs> Got to make sure I don't have women. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> never do women. Now, curiously, I, I've never I, actually. I recently did one of Luke Armand, who's the yeah. um, designer of Rosen, and um, and uh, just the other week I put up a. There's a series we've been doing. There's a series by a, a Kiwi guy called James Johnson, and he's. Been, I've done a. It's about a six-page uh, spread in each cross-country magazine. There's been four issues so far. And there's been a few caricatures of people, people like Brad Gunnishio, the American uh, top pilot, Russ Logdon, um, a few other Brits, and no one seemed to take offence or worry about it. But just in the latest magazine, I did do I did a caricature of a meat director, which is more really of a caricature of how meat directors are perceived. It's essentially a sort of yeah. fascist dictator. But the um, meat director at this event who we were talking of got the wrong end of the stick. And of course, it wasn't a caricature of him. I've never even seen a photograph of him. It didn't look remotely like him. It might, yeah. well, apparently, some people said it did. But it wasn't intended as a caricature of him. It was a caricature of the, the beast role. of yeah. the role. Within that magazine, within that article, I think there was a caricature of well, James Johnson himself and somebody else. Um, but anyway, he got really quite offended by it. And some other people did. And I don't know. Inside, oh crikey! Well, then the next issue coming up, I've done these other caricatures of Luke <laughs> and um, Guy Anderson, Anderson, who I've done it before. Yeah. And I've, I've, I've just quick message on Facebook. I've done this. <laughs> you know, don't take offence. <laughs> I only do caricatures really of people you know I like and admire because mm -hmm. they take a load of time to do yeah. and they're really difficult to do. And um, and of course Luke loved it, so fine. Phew. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But and Guy's gonna. Guy's gonna. Yeah, well, I already do one of them in the past. Yeah. And uh, he hasn't seen this one. Yeah. I don't know if he's out in the, out in the next few days, but he's, he's dressed as a vicar this time, I think. I can't imagine you're going to offend him, though. I shouldn't think so. And, and poor Russell Ogden, he tends to get, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's had a few. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, they're amazing. Like you were saying that you only do them for people you like and admire. Like, it's, what, like, I've looked through all of your, I'm massively into art. I love art. I lo uh, I've got friends who are great artists, friends who are amazing tattoo artists, and I regularly share their work on Facebook because I love that. That to me is, I don't really believe in talent. Talent, I don't really believe that talent exists. I believe that there's a, you have a certain amount of attributes. It could be applied to many different things with, and if you couple that with focus, dedication, you could achieve amazing things in a, in a few, in a few sectors. Like if you're five foot two, you're probably never going to be a basketball player. We know that. So, but if you're, you know like six foot ten and you're athletic and you're strong and you enjoy sports those are attributes that can lend themselves to you being a basketball player so put uh an enjoyment of basketball and commitment and dedication you'll probably be a basketball player and someone's going to say oh he's so talented and gifted and i'm like well he's not he's had all the attributes and he's assigned them to basketball so for me i think art is one of those things where there's, I mean, you can teach yourself to draw. I've seen friends who weren't massively artistic, they put pictures up. Then a year later, their art is incredible because they've practiced at it. But I do think that being able to see things in a certain way, like your yours with caricature, you see things and then you manage to interpret them in a way that 
is a bit extraordinary, but in a way that everyone still recognises it. So art and music, singing, are the two bits that sort of dispel my thing with, with, not having, with talent not being real. Because I think art, being able to visualise and see stuff in that way is not, that's got to be a talent or some, there's something there that, that can't maybe be trained. And with music, obviously, if you don't have the voice, mm. how well can you train the voice? But then I could just be ignorant and not know enough about it. So, uh, yeah, I really like art. And I see your pictures and over the years. And like, it's always, they're always of people who have some sort of esteem in the paragliding world. Or they're really good pilots. They've achieved stuff. Or they're, they're figures who are fundamental in British paragliding, let's say, looking at it from the book. So I always thought it's a, an honour to be drawn, drawn by you, you know, just the same as me being invited into the North-South Cup team means loads to me because mm. I used to hear about the North-South Cup, you know, when I first started flying, oh, the North-South, I'd go out and be like, where is everyone? Oh, the North-South Cup this weekend. What's the North-South Cup? And they'd be like, oh, the North versus the South is the top 30 pilots and they get selected by Jim Mallinson and Jockey Sanderson. And then you get, so to be invited into the team is like a massive honour for me. And I was like, wow, like, made the North-South Cup. And that, from, conversely, your drawings are along the same sort of thing. If you see someone who's been drawn a, a caricature by you, you know they're somebody, you know? Mm. And they don't, they don't have to be a top comp pilot or anything, but they're, they're somebody. They've been in the scene. They're respected in the scene. They're liked in the scene. They're known. So, yeah, I always saw them and I thought, like, yeah, it's a, a, an honour for someone to have been drawn by you. If you haven't paid or you're not doing paid work for a, a magazine article, if you've chosen to draw someone, you know? So yeah, those caricatures have really stood out for me. I really, uh, I really like them, and also because I probably couldn't do it. I think that's why I'm obsessed with things I'm I'm crap at. That's why I start. That's why I liked paragliding. People have said to me, "Oh, you're good at paragliding." I'm like, "Yeah, but I was crap." Like that's why I got obsessed. Mm. If I'm good at something, generally, I sort of don't bother with it. And the thing with paragliding, you can be good one day. And absolutely mm. crap the next, you know? And that, for me, is why the obsession grows. Because what I'm not good at, I generally get obsessed with. Like, with paragliding, I always thought of paragliding, I can get good at this. I can understand weather. I can understand flying. I can understand how it all works. I can get good. So I'd come home and get obsessed. And I've not flown less than 270 hours a season since I started mm. flying, you know? Yeah. I've, and I realised, like, I can get, yeah, this is... I can get better at this. I can, and I go out and I do a really good flight and then I go out the next day and I bomb and everyone will climb out above my head. And obsessed then. Well, you're obviously very good at... I think in, to get a far in paragraph, you've got to be good at losing. Good at having a bad day. Because you, yeah. you, know, you get... I've known people who've um, pretty good and they bomb out on a day when everyone else does well and they just get so demotivated they always, they leave the sport. Yeah. But I guess... You've had the shit kicked out of you many a fight. Yeah. I mean, when you've had... The worst thing is in fighting, you have to tap out. or You either get knocked out. If you get knocked out, you get knocked out. Or you have to submit. You have to give up. Mm. And I've had to do that. And when you have to give up at something, it sort of tortures you. You know, you lay in bed later on that night and you're like, fuck no, I fucking quit. And I quit. And it's not a position where you could not quit. Like you're getting choked unconscious or someone's going to break your arm, you know. And for me, I say to everyone, if you're on an arm bar and you're going to get your arm broke, tap. Don't have an injury that could take a year to recover from. Tap, mm. move on to the next fight. But it'll always torture me. Every one of my losses tortures me. If I watch it back on YouTube, I'll be tortured for two or three nights again if I'd have done this, if I'd have done that. But and that's why I stayed away from the comp scene in paragliding a little bit because yeah, I but thought it can be very very demoralising. <laughs> and yeah. for me, it's 
it was more the obsession to be good at it. You know, mm. I didn't, I didn't, I've been an active um, MMA fighter, and I knew if I got so obsessed with paragliding that I wanted to fly comps next minute, I'll be at every PWC I can get into, and I'll just be so obsessed with that there would be no time to fight. Luckily, I got some injuries; it stopped me from fighting, so I was man. I managed to paraglide a lot, and uh, but I could see that when when I finish MMA, when my career is over, I could really see myself thinking right then. That's Comp, let's comp fly now let's mm. really do it you know not saying I'll be any good at it but that obsession I can see that sportsman obsession I could take with me I think yeah no. I think well it's, uh, I always get obsessed about things and uh, I think it's the only way I can do things by being really really focused and just all in yeah yeah and then hence why you were very good and well you're still very good but you're very good on the comp scene when you were paragliding yeah. and then well, I've lost that focus now, you know. But luckily, you know, I just love... I think I've almost... Uh, I kind of enjoy it more now, you know. And I can... Because um, I am just appreciate it for the you know, the pure joy of flying. And, you know, yeah. And, and I, it's a great thing not having to worry about not doing well. <laughs> yeah. Do you, so do you do any uh, paragliding holidays yourself? Do you get to go yeah. away and fly? England, every year. <laughs> <laughs> this one week... Sometimes you get lucky and you add no. a... You no, I, 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 I don't often know because I've got... Uh, I don't know, it's just it's difficult. You know, I've had kids and I know I've got... Kids are old enough now, but now I've, I've got lots of dogs now and I can't leave them. <laughs> so, uh, oh, and the wife. Yeah, not allowed to... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess so. You neglect them when you're out doing flying most yeah. of the time at Pugetita, and, so... You know, I get, I get a vast amount of flying. You know, every, 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 I'm usually flying, you know, five, six hours a day in the summertime and then come October, I think, well, whew, yeah, okay, I've got... I can do without that, but I can do with the rest now, and I'm not too too. I can go. I can go without flying. I didn't used to be able to. You know, I was just yeah. all the time mad for it. Um, but usually now, come around, you know, April, I start thinking about my English holiday, and and yeah. now I'm really, you know, just really up for flying. Yeah. And um, you know, I, I didn't go out yesterday, and I was really pissed. I thought this was going to be bad weather. And I was looking at the phone, looking at the text coming through, and I'm like, what am I doing? Yeah, what am I doing? Why don't I go? should have been out yesterday. But I, I, I did, but I, you know, I've got my 83-year-old mother who I have to sort of yeah. spend a few minutes with. And um, But I think, but then if I had gone, it wasn't that good a day. And I'd probably just been bimbling around, on the because I did look at the reports down at the rifle range, and there was only a bit of local soaring going on there. Yeah, or, yeah. I think in other places. A couple of people got away from milk and stuff. Didn't do anything yeah. really big, but yeah. Uh, but they're not Steve Hamm as but, well. Well, so. yeah, but... But even just bimbling around Westbury, I just love it, you know, because it's the, the, it's the beauty of this fantastic landscape, you know. Whereas I probably at home in Piedrita, I don't go up unless it's really good these days because I know every rock and every house and every... <laughs> so how often do you fly on your own out there other than when you've got groups out there? Do you fly a lot on yourself? Oh, I, I've started in the last... Uh, we've got... Um, it's a few local pilots. Yeah. It's a local scene. But they only tend to fly in um, late afternoon flights. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I then, and I'll be doing tandem, you know, commercial tandem flights and stuff yeah. um, f- from you know, the last few months. But now there's actually, curiously, I've got, well, I've got a friend who's retired and he's living there, a Spanish guy, and we all go out together. And uh, there's another, there's a Brit actually, he's just turned up renting a house there. He lives in Australia, but he's just retiring and he's going to have a house in Spain, a house in Australia. So he's sort of up for it every day, of course. Yeah. But I'm not really up for it every day because I've got, you know, other cartoons to draw dogs to walk and, yeah. and you know the mountain's there and it's been there for the last 30 years and I kind of you know don't want to and <laughs> the weather I mean 
how many days a week are you looking you could fly if you wanted to ah well yeah that's it's every day's every day's flyable but yeah. they're not always survival yeah? <laughs> you know you can fly yeah. every day yeah <laughs> but uh you know i like to in the summertime you know you have to, to when people are around and i have to fly and people want to do then we'll we'll go out on you know, even not dangerous days but we'll go on days which aren't you know, magnificent um, but these, yeah, when I'm free flying, I'm not going to go back and just stooge around because there is the hassle of getting the car back after leaving it at takeoff, and yeah. these are just minor inconveniences in life. And you know, just for local flying, I'm not going to do that. But when I'm here in England, I will have the inconvenience of driving for an hour to Westbury just for a little bit of local flying because yeah. it's one. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I still do that anyway. We like Tim Carr will ring me. Like, Tim obviously taught me to fly, so. Tim and I have flown together a lot since then, you know. And uh, so Tim will ring me, he's like, Oh, even in Westbury, and I'm like, It's four o'clock, I'm like, yeah, come on in. And we'll just drive to Westbury, and we'll literally have the last two, three hours. Regularly, Tim Pintreef would be there, or Alex would be there, you know, always someone at Westbury anyway. But we'll just go, we'll just fly to Sunday, mm. literally to the point where you can't have sunglasses anymore because it's too dark. So you land and you're packing up with the car headlights there just to get out and have an hour, but at the same time. I do pretty much zero winter flying. I mm. don't go to the coast to have a couple of hours because I don't like being cold. So mm. I very, very rarely will go out and do winter flying. Like a, an evening at Westbury in November is non-existent to me. I wouldn't. I, I, I just don't go there. So usually from like October till February, you don't even see me under a paraglider, which I think is good for me because it keeps me hungry and I get to fly the eagle and stuff and hunt with the eagle and yeah. do that side of things, you know? Well, yeah, so, I, mean, I still um I do admire people who can compartmentalize their life. You know, people like me. <laughs> I had to all but go flying. You know, I'm obsessed by it for so many years. And that kind of, and there are people who come out to stay with me, and they have two weeks paragliding or maybe one week's paragliding in the whole year. You know, there's people who come out because they got wife, committing jobs, and they didn't do any paragliding. They don't even fly in the UK, and they have their paragliding week holiday. And these guys are amazing, you know, because they go out to Spain, quite strong conditions. There's a guy I'm thinking of, Ian Walker, and uh, he's remarkable. You know, he's a he's an accountant and um, works very hard, no paragliding. Comes out with me and you think, I ask him, when did you last go flying then? He says, well, when I was out with you last year. And he's not, he, last few years he's been knocking in you know, 100k flights. And then at the end of the week, puts it away and that's it. That's, that's paragliding. You know, how can you do that? That is crazy to me. <laughs> you know, to keep a good level and be able to switch off and just go back to normal life. You know, yeah. you know what do you think about every day? Well, Paragliding the next year, I guess. <laughs> no, he's got. He's someone who can do other things. Like you've got other things. You do yeah. falconry, you're fighting, and everything. And you know, I'm hopefully now at the situation where I can not think about flying all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you might be too far gone, Steve. No, I'm honest, you might be too far gone. No, I've, 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 no because it's okay when you're not thinking about flying, you're drawing flying, so it's completely yeah. fine. Well, I'd actually, I'd love to actually do, I'd love to be an illustrator for other things apart from paragliding, but that's the sort of cycle I've gone into, you know. Um, you know someone says, yeah, we got this children's book, we wanted you to illustrate. Oh, yes, please. But no paragliding in it, please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think there'd be, you You could get have some serious interest, caricatures of professional fighters and stuff, that'd be good. Um, people love, like MMA fighters love things like that, you know, having their own little caricature and mm. 
So yeah, and then you got obviously child book illustration and stuff. It'd be amazing. I, I think that'd be really cool to mm. do something like. But um, that's something that you can pursue as and when you yeah. want. You guess you're not going to lose your talent for drawing. So you draw on a tablet, right? That's what, is that you doing? Well, because I got this fixed. You know, I got this knackered arm. Yeah. Because they put the hand on the wrong way again when they operated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I can't. I haven't got much rotation movement. And I have to. If I draw, I can draw on anything. But it has to be at a certain angle, like a drawing board, yeah. up at about thirty-five to forty-four degrees. Just so my arm can move across it, I have to draw from my shoulder rather than my wrist because my wrist has got no movement. And so I tend to draw. And I've got a very, I've got a big whack on tablet. It's about twenty, big thing, and I can slide that I wear a sort of slippery glove, and I just slide my arm across. You know, holding a digital pen, a stylus, yeah. and I tend to draw on that. And I can draw on a, on anything which has got the right angle. Yeah, uh, yeah I tend to do work on it. I don't mm -hmm. use a mouse. That's impossible for me. And uh, so yeah, it's a, a stylus on a on a big tablet at the right angle. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that'd be cool. That's a that's a, a career path for you afterwards. If you're going to stop drawing paraglider pilots, start caricatures or illustration for something else. Uh, who knows? Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Many many different opportunities. Um, so mate, listen, you're unconscious that you have to go for dinner. Um, we're about an hour and twenty minutes in. I could sit and talk to you for ages, but if you've got to go for dinner, we can wrap this up. If yeah, you well, Pete Douglas, in the future, when he listens to this, he realise why I'm late. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'll be to blame. Uh, so, a couple of questions I'd like mm. for you. Where's the Where's the best place or your favourite place you've paraglided other than Peter Ugly. in the UK? Ugly. is my favourite site. Right, Ugly, because it's just down the road from us. Yeah, it's my favourite site. Ugly. Place is nice, unstable airflow, yeah. and it's just. Bloody marvellous. Yeah. Pretty wonderful. You're flying over wonderful Mendips, the historic, you know, the Somerset Flats. It just makes me weep. Yeah. My favourite side. It. Flying no, over just... the top of Cheddar Gorge and watching yeah. the cars drive It's through. just wonderful. Yeah. No, I'm, all, I'm welling up now. <laughs> <laughs> and um, well, most of the Avon sites, really, because it's, you know, it's home for us West yeah. Country lads. And um, and I just need to do that. Let Camden to Weymouth, you know, because I don't know about you, you know, the old trips in the Sharabang down to Weymouth when we were kids. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not a Sharabang, you know. I'm not, I'm not even that old. But you know, you know, just a flight away, land on the beach, have an ice cream, and yeah, you know, get back. Unfortunately, I don't think it'll be this trip. No, it won't be. Um, I don't think we're. I think we're going to be pretty much up north for the North South Cup this year. Yeah. So it won't be. I don't think it'll be this. But if we get the right wind, we could maybe get Langokan or somewhere down to there. Massive flight. Mm. Right wind, we could get it, um, but I don't think we should be thinking that. I think you won't be flying away with this year, Never which mind. is a bummer. It's a bummer. So, nowhere abroad, there's nowhere that's six in your mind. Oh, Peter Reed is pretty good, yeah. I'm kind of used to that. And La, La, La Lastra, which is you know, other, other southerly site, which um, which had the I think well, our local site is the main site's called Pena Negra, and the other one's called Lastra. And Lastra's had the European record or oh, opting times. So I think it's still the biggest uh, foot launched European. Distant. I mean, some did 358 k's there last year. So, um, yeah, they're pretty good sites. Um, but as Colin Lyon said, you know, any f old hang hang apart from Avon Club, dearly beloved chap, you know, any site which the wind's coming up the front, yeah, yeah. The, you know, it's, it's a step yeah. off site to to see other sites, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I uh, like last year doing the X pair, obviously, I flew a lot of flew lots through the Pyrenees and on places that aren't sites they're just mountains and the wind's coming up the face you just take off like perfect i can get in the air again you know mm. but even in the lead up to that um i would join up with tosh in steve mcintosh in wells and a lot of time he'd text me he's like what are you thinking tomorrow I'm like wherever you want to go so we'd go and we just it'd just be little sites that aren't sites you know you can't find them on any sites guide they're just he's like oh i know somebody flew this years ago we'll go check this out 
and it was good training for the X pier and we'd just go and take off on little random sites and even if I did like a 30 or 40k I was over the moon I left a site I'd never flown so something in like the first month or six weeks of paraglide last year I'd flown 11 new sites and that I really liked they were only in Wells and um, Scotland and stuff but for me I really enjoyed that taking off at new places that I hadn't flown before even though it was local so I like that side of it and I flew Snowdonia last year which was really nice I don't know if you've flown up that way at no, all, but no. really really nice it gets hit with sea breeze so it can kill your day quite early but um, that was really cool so I would like to go into a triangle with Snowdon in the middle I'd like to do a big triangle up there one day but yeah really nice so I, I like the uh, I like the adventure of flying somewhere new mm. the repetition of flying you know Selsley to Peter uh, to Petersfield and stuff the repetition of that would drive me bonkers eventually I'd be like right somewhere else with a northerly I'm going to go somewhere else and I'd go to somewhere else you know uh, northwesterly I'd go somewhere else because I like taking off in a new place flying to a new place I like that you know I like to go to Maisnol which we can walk to from here <laughs> I do a lot of Maisnol on a day when the British air was it Brit- Lowell's gate is closed down and go and land on the Downs <laughs> that would be amazing that would be good wouldn't it I still want to fly back to the Downs when we flew from Hay Bluff the other day you look at my track log I'm aiming, aiming straight for the Downs but when I got near the bridges or down that way the wind had completely changed angle it was very westerly and I thought I can't push into wind and try and get over the channel so uh do you flown, you've flown a bit at Maisonall, have you? All the time I've flown Really? When I was training for X-Pier, yeah. I would come in from work and it would be like I don't know, five o'clock and it, the, weather, the wind would be on. So I'd get my bag, get the dog, we'd jog up there. Uh-huh. I'd get to the top, I'd fly it for an hour, two hours, the dog just running around. Oh, brilliant. I'd land oh. and I'd jog back. Yeah, I fly up there a lot. If it's ever on an easterly or east to southeast, yeah, yeah. I'm up there. Because yeah. I just let the dog run. I know the farmer I let the dog run up there and I fly I might be able to two three hours sometimes I'm literally up there just can get off yeah. can hardly maintain and I'll just work top landings coming in top landing coming in top landing crosswind landing just mm-hmm. just going out there for that you know I love yeah. it well I like it because it's close and also yeah. back in the early 70s when I was at school it's when I first heard about hang gliding and the people have been there and I've, I've stored that I'm, I've stored there on my hang glider actually have you even climbed the thermon out there on, on, uh, back in the 80s yeah so um so anybody on a paraglider who moans about Maisonall now, you've flown on a hang glider, so oh, that's yeah. plenty enough for a hang yeah, glider. Yeah. yeah, I tell yeah. people all the time, I say to people like, I'm going up to Maisonall and Rob um Rod Taylor flies Maisonall quite often and mm. very often I'll see something about Maisonall and I'll be watching with my binoculars out my window because mm. with my binoculars I can see as if he's twenty foot away. You can see him flying it without binoculars. So I get my binoculars He's maintaining, getting the boom, and I'm gone straight up there, and I'll go up for 20 minutes, half an hour if possible, you know? Especially my lightweight kit. I'm surprised, yeah, people who were, they said, right, like yesterday, someone's going down to the rifle range, they saw, and they're living in Bristol. Why would you do that? Yeah. You might as well saw there. (laughs) I'm not the same, yeah, the same thing. I would never drive an hour down to Mir. Yeah. I'll go and fly that every time. Especially when it's easterly, and it's right on the margin, but there's nowhere for easterly. I'd have to go to Malvern or Pandy. Mm. So for me, I'm amazed. No, for an hour after work, you get enough of a fix. If you don't get to Paraguay for the rest of that week, yeah. you're okay. Yeah, I really like it. I like Maze Knoll. So I'm glad we have that in common. Oh, yeah. I can say that every time anybody says Maze Knoll, I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Steve Hans' favourite site. Not my favourite site. Whoa, whoa, but Steve. I like it because you can see it from your eyes. Can't yeah. You like my mother's nice. <laughs> yeah, and I can see it from mine. Yeah, exactly. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's a bit of, you know, it makes me think I'm a lad again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I used to train falcons and stuff up there before yeah. I ever before I ever did paragliding. I used to take falcons up there because 
you can automatically start at height. Yeah. So if my bird only gains 200 foot, when you're training a young peregrine, they don't go very high at first. You have to train them to go high. So if he only gets 200 foot, I can start to walk down the, down the slope. And before you know it, he's 400 foot now. He hasn't done anything. I've just got lower. So I can serve him from there. Mm. And it just gets them used to, oh, when I'm higher, I get better serving. So after a few months of that, they'll go up. 500 foot and then you still walk down now they're 700 so i used to train falcons up there a lot and then i'd get like buzzards or red tails and i'd take them up there to soar it for a bit and didn't even knew paragliding existed then obviously but yeah we'd just use it for for that so for me to fly it now is yeah really cool and because the planes are coming over quite low as well if you get a thermal you can climb up a few hundred feet like the planes are right close to you that's nice oh when I flew my hang gliding climbed that all those years ago there wasn't quite so much air traffic back then yeah. <laughs> it wasn't pretty such busy, busy it wasn't such a busy airport yeah but they're pretty much on a on a coast straight across aren't they yeah, yeah pretty busy now but yeah well Steve listen mate honestly yeah, it was likewise. great to uh, it was great to have flown with you the last couple of days and I look forward to the weekend but also thank you very much for doing this it was great to my have pleasure. a chat and hear like the history of paragliding for you and where you came from and uh yeah and anybody who wants to click on your website to see about flying and peter Hita, is there a website or anything for them to go to uh yeah curiously i should i should have called it i called it fly piedrahita.com but piedrahita is a very difficult word to spell yeah. <laughs> when i did you know, this is back in the mid 90s so we, what should we choose as our website i should have just put if i had to put fly spain why, why didn't i <laughs> but it's not it's not it's yeah. fly piedrahita which p-i-e-d-r-a-h-i-t-a but if you put Steve Ham Spain, you'll probably get there anyway. Yeah, and what about for your artwork or anything? Got any website? I've got a, I've got a Instagram account, yeah. uh, Steve Ham Art. So add add Steve yeah. on Instagram for his art. Um, even if you are listening, you're not into paragliding. Add that. Have a look at some of the caricatures, and then their names of the people who they are will probably be there. You might be able to go on Facebook or Google and look at the comparisons of how good they are. And I think you will be shocked at just how brilliant these caricatures are. We're not talking like Spanish seafront caricatures they're really quite perfectly apt so yeah check steve's instagram out steve thank you once again um hopefully you'll get all the flying you want this weekend to make up for you coming over again and uh, yeah my pleasure thank you good thank you